Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 39 of Coffee Talks. You know the drill, what we do here, talking about whatever uh, book or um, ideas or thoughts, whatever, are floating around in this noggin. Uh, if you have chosen to be a part of this uh, little community, um, I'm flattered and concerned for you that you want to spend this much more time listening to me. It cracks me up. I was talking to my dad the other day, who I know is going to be listening to this, and he's just saying that sometimes he feels like he's ha- already talked to me that day because he listens to things like this. And, and that's really the goal. Like, it just makes me so happy that sometimes you all feel like you're, you're part of the conversation. Um, I don't want this to turn into me just preaching a sermon or a monologue, even though it's literally a monologue, but feel making it feel like you're able to really uh, track with what we're talking about and, and things like that. That makes me really happy. Um, and then on the other front i just saw my dad recently um and it made me so happy to see he'd gotten a couple of the books that we've talked about on this podcast so uh it just cracks me up like man free podcast but if you buy a couple of the books then he was like man uh, i'm a couple hundred dollars in the hole here trying to buy all these books because you know the episodes are interesting so anyways uh i hope that you all don't just take my word for uh for it but you check some of these works out that are interesting to you um, and with that in mind, uh, I want to wrap up some thoughts on the book from our last episode, which is The War of Art, Break Through the Blocks and Win Your Inner Creative Battles. Again, this is by Stephen Pressfield. Um, and the book is separated into three sections, and he talks a lot about resistance. I covered the first section in our last episode, which is all about defining the enemy um, or and what he calls resistance. Uh, and if you want to hear more about that, I'm not going to reiterate it. Go back to that episode. This episode is about combating resistance, the the second um, section of the book. And I really, really like this section a lot. Um, the third section I thought was the weakest part of the book. Other people have loved it. So again, that's why you should get it yourself and let me know what you think. Um, but yeah, I just want to share a little bit of what some of this means to me as I'm sitting reading through these things. Um, so yeah, well, let's just jump into it. So it, it, each of the books have a little quote with it um, on the first page. And the first uh, quote here is from a mercenary in the fifth century. Um, and it says, it is one thing to study war and another thing to live the warrior's life. And that's from Telamon of Arcadia, mercenary of the fifth century bc actually so negative 500 years from zero so uh studying war and living as a warrior are two different things um i think that relates to the famous quote of like it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war and i understand the sentiment of some of that stuff but it's a little bit like eh. sometimes i think we glorify um some of those things to the extent where like hands-on experience is absolutely necessary, but it, you know, maybe it just shows my cards that like, I think studying and learning is so important, but um, there's a difference between a learned warrior and an amateur warrior. What's the definition of a warrior, right? Living the warrior's life. I go to battle, but some people are better at battle than other people. And uh, usually the people that know history and know how to study war are going to be better at war. So I think it sometimes sets up a false dichotomy. But for a fortune cookie and a one-liner, it sounds really good, right? Um, 
and by the way, there's been a lot of wars fought by uh, people that aren't trained warriors. Some of the most impressive and inspiring wars are people that chose to raise up arms and defend themselves despite not having, you know, formal training as warriors. So sometimes being a gardener in the war, um, sure, you would have been more empowered if you were a trained warrior, I guess. But there's more to life than winning wars, I guess. But all of this is just random responses. The, the context of book two in this book, Combating Resistance, the little subtitle under that is Turning Pro. And so his whole point is we need to get out of this amateur mindset when it comes to the things that we're passionate about. And in along those lines, I'm on board. I get what he's saying. And so I want to share some of the uh, distinctions he makes here. Um, he says, aspiring artists defeated by resistance share one trait, and it's that they all think like amateurs. They haven't turned pro. And so uh, this is something I think most of us do on some level. We go, oh, well, like, I'm not really a musician. I, I just do it for fun. I'm, I'm an amateur. I do it on the side. And, and somehow we, we try to separate our love for our hobbies, our passions, et cetera, by saying we're either an amateur or we do it for work, like somehow getting paid to do that thing, like shift it into a different category. And the difficulty with that is that sometimes we start to feel guilty if we get paid to do things that we love, right? We hear about musicians all the time that just lose their love for music because it became a job, right? Or like I work in a church and like how tragic would that be if you lose your love for ministry. And this is a very common experience because it's become your job, right? Um, and sometimes we try to protect that moment from happening by saying, oh, well, like, no, I just enjoy that on the side. I'm an amateur. Pressfield says, no, no, no. It, this is actually the opposite mentality. And this is resistance working in you. So it gives a couple um, uh, statements here to to make sense of this. He says, the amateur plays for fun. The professional plays for keeps. To the amateur, the game is his avocation. To the pro, it's his vocation. The amateur plays part-time. The professional plays full-time. The amateur is a weekend warrior. The professional is there seven days a week, which includes the weekend. The word amateur comes from the Latin root meaning to love. And the conventional interpretation is that the amateur pursues his calling out of love while the pro does it just for money. And Pressfield says, that's not the way I see it. In my view, the amateur doesn't love the game enough. If they did, they'd pursue, they would not pursue it as a sideline distinct from his quote unquote real vocation. The professional loves it so much. He dedicates his life to it. He commits full time. That's what I mean when I say I'm turning pro. Resistance hates it when we turn pro. Now, a couple of things here. Sometimes we conflate the ideas of vocation and occupation. Different words. And you know, words matter. Thanks for listening. Occupations are sometimes what we have to do to get by, right? There are plenty of people in life that work jobs that they don't like because they have to get by. And that is okay. There's nothing inherently bad about that whatsoever. That's a different thing from vocation, right? Vocation has to do with some, some level of calling. Um, and when we talk about our vocation, sometimes we separate that from the things that we are 
lucky enough to get paid for or not. So for example, I'm someone that like, I feel it's my vocation to teach theology and scripture and life and, you know, all these things. And I'm fortunate enough that I work in a church that enables me to do those things and enables me to grow and better myself. And that's a, a a powerful like situation that I'm in to have those two things, um, intersect in that way. Uh, but sometimes there are people, and we'll go back to the musician example of, you know, they work their nine to five job at, you know, some accounting firm and they don't love accounting. They're not passionate about numbers, but they're good at it and they make a living and they feel comfortable, but they really love music. But they view themselves as amateur musicians because I love it so much. I don't get paid for it. Right. I'm just doing it for the love of it. Pressfield's thesis and contention is that no, 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 no. you don't love it enough. And the difficulty of this is sometimes loving it, just playing an hour a day or three hours a week, that's enough. That is enough for what your life needs. But his idea and point is like, don't reduce your love for something by calling yourself an amateur. Commit yourself to the thing you know you've been called to. You might not be called to music and you might still be good at it, but it doesn't mean you're called to it. There are people, I believe, that have a calling in, you know, mathematical fields. I think there are an overwhelming majority of people that work in those kinds of fields that are miserable and don't feel called to it, right? That's not to discourage them from keeping those jobs. It's to say, sometimes we work jobs that have nothing to do with our calling. Sometimes your calling in life operates in conjunction with your job. Right. Like, OK, I go nine to five to go do this thing that enables me to go do the things that I feel called to do in my life. Sometimes this this job is a means to the end. And I'm going to strive to be my best, do my best and inspire people with my work ethic at this job that I, that doesn't fulfill me. But it's going to enable me to go fulfill my calling elsewhere. That is a total, totally viable path in life. But when we talk about the things that we're passionate about and the things that we feel we're called to, we have to stop this language of amateur. We need to to commit to turning pro in Pressfield's mind. And I think there's something there. Um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not ready to drink all the Kool-Aid, but, but committing rather than being the quote unquote weekend warrior to the seven days a week person, because you just... It, it's not something that you're just doing for money. You, you're doing it because you love it and you want to be better and you want to, to give yourself to that thing because it, it, the end result is this desired fulfilling purpose. And again, this is where I want to import my perspective of image bearers of the divine, this purpose that's been given to me by God, bestowed upon me, then every part of my life needs to be committed to living out that purpose, not just my work hours, right? Not just the few free hours I get on the weekend. If, if this is part of the calling I think that's on my life, then everything should contribute to this. I need to transition from amateur to pro. So a lot of words on that first little uh, excerpt. I do plan to get through this whole uh, book too. Uh, he says, uh, someone once asked, uh, I can't even pronounce this person's name. It's an author. So I'm going to ask this author if he wrote on a schedule or only when struck by inspiration. And he, the author responded, I write only when inspiration strikes. Fortunately, it strikes every morning at nine o'clock sharp. He says, that's a pro. 
In terms of resistance, he was saying, I despise resistance. I won't let it phase me. I will sit down and do my work. And he said uh, that by performing the mundane physical act of sitting down and starting to work, he set in motion a mysterious but infallible sequence of events that would produce inspiration. He knew if he built it, she would come. I thought that was a really um, frustrating idea uh, because I think it's true and I don't want to, right? The idea of like, I'm only going to do this when it feels good, when I love it, when I, when I feel inspired. And he's like, well, you need to give yourself the space to feel inspired, right? What, what, what is your vocation? What is your calling? What is your passion? What do you feel resistant about in your life? And you start thinking about all the things that you wish you could do. And now you need to set a time that you're actually going to commit to doing it. For me, this podcast has been one experiment of that, like sitting down to do two podcasts a week. Sometimes it's like, ah, man, I don't know. Like, am I going to have enough? And it's like, well, if I know Tuesday's coming and I have to get a podcast out, that means I need to prepare for that podcast beforehand. Like I have to read, I have to, to, to lead into that moment. Um, I just did this Narnia series, right? And it's like, oh, I'm going to read when I feel like reading. Okay, well, sure enough, that Narnia series, it started every Wednesday night at six o'clock, which means I need to have the book read no later than Wednesday morning so that I could write up notes, build a slideshow, prepare it, rehearse it. So yeah, I can wait to read until I'm inspired. But at the end of the day, there's a deadline on it. Like I have to get it done. This is that next step of saying, no, no, I'm telling myself when I'm starting, when I'm giving inspiration the space to have its way. Uh, and, and that idea of like, you know, the writer's hardest task is not writing an amazing piece of work. It's sitting down to write. It's the same thing with someone that wants to be a reader or wants to be a writer. There, there's an awesome book that I probably won't do with you all. Um, it's not the kind of book that lends itself to this format, but um, Atomic Habits by James Clear. And it's all about setting, you know, these micro habits in our lives and bundling them with other habits that we already have, good or bad, and yada, 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 right? It's a very um, practical self-help kind of book. But one of the things he talks about is like um, the story of a friend who lost like 100 pounds in a year uh, and the beginning of that journey was going to the gym for five minutes a day, six days a week. Now, of course, you can't do anything in five minutes, right? You can't even finish a full set of workouts in five minutes. But his point was, I realized that the first thing I had to accomplish was developing the habit of showing up, of consistently showing up. And so once you consistently committed to showing up to the gym, and he'd get there, and for five minutes, he'd be like, this is so stupid that I'm leaving after five minutes. Like, I already drove all the way here. I parked my car. I changed my clothes. Why would I only do five minutes? But that was the crucial first step, was committing to showing up. It's the same thing here of showing up at nine o'clock every morning to start writing as a writer and, and working on your, your chord progressions every day as a musician and, and working on fill in the blank. What is it for you? What is the thing that you need to commit from transitioning from amateur to professional. He goes on, this is the next section. Uh, he says, uh, this is what a writer's day feels like. Um, he says, the principle of priority states, you must know the difference between what is urgent and what's important 
and you must do what's important first. What's important is the work. That's the game I have to suit up for. Of course, there are things that come up that are urgent, but the important things have to be priority, right? Um, this is one part of the book where uh, he goes on a little bit about his experience with the military and learning how to be miserable. And I think he glorifies some of that a little bit too much um, from my vantage point. But there is uh, a, a lesson to be learned and a value in learning how to press forward, press on, despite things not going the way you want them to go. And he talked about in the first section, part of being you know, part of overcoming resistance is knowing that there are going to be really amazing days, like above average days and really horrible days, below average days. And you need to show up for all of them so that the average is this net positive experience. Part of how we show up in our faith lives is recognizing sometimes there are going to be days when things feel like they're all going the right way. And some days it's going to feel like everything's against us, but faith is showing up in both circumstances right? Um, so he goes on and talks a little bit more about uh, this miserable uh, idea of loving and learning how to be miserable. He says, this is invaluable for an artist. And he's talking about, again, his life as a Marine. He says, Marines love to be miserable. Marines derive a, a satisfaction in have, having cold, colder chow, crappier equipment, um, and all these different things. And he says, you know, that the reason they're so much different from normal people is because normal people don't know how to be miserable. He says the artist committing himself to his calling has volunteered for hell, whether he knows it or not, he will be dining, uh, for the duration on a diet of ice isolation, rejection, self-doubt, despair, ridicule, contempt, and humiliation. You have to be like a Marine learn how to love being miserable, um, take pride in being more miserable than any other soldier um, uh, because this is war, baby, and war is hell. Now, this kind of language frustrates me a little bit. It's just a little, I think the point he's making is very powerful, right? I'll go back to the part I think is valuable. Um, an artist, and that word has is expansive, an artist uh, needs to learn how to live on the diet of isolation, rejection, self-doubt, despair, ridicule, contempt, and humiliation. That's obviously not the ideal situation for life, but there are days when, when you're doing what you believe is right, that you will experience isolation and rejection. We see that in the life of Jesus himself, right? Uh, Jesus ended up alone, ended up rejected by those closest to him. Uh, despair, ridicule, contempt, humiliation. I mean, these are all things in the life of Christ that we see. Uh, and again, I don't want to overly import Christian, you know, ethics and meaning into this. And yet I also do, right? Um, those are the kinds of things that anytime we pursue what we believe God's called us to, you better believe there's a force that is, that is antagonistic to that. Apostle Paul calls that, you know, powers and principalities, um, that, that are against the movement of, of the Spirit of God, uh, not just in God's will for the world, but in us. You know, the more that we pursue the life God's called us to, we are going to be met with those, those negative forces trying to hold us back. Um, here, I think, 
the the language of like this is war baby war is hell learn to love it be more prideful about your misery than the next person we shouldn't glorify being miserable um that there that's a whole long rabbit rabbit hole i'm not going to go down today but there is something about glorifying suffering um for the sake of saying like if you don't suffer as much as me you are not as valuable as me um we see it in the negative sense I guess I'd press back on press field, uh, a lot of pressing. Um, I'd press back in this sense, like uh, when, you know, in the stereotypical teenage scenario where it's like, oh, I've got the most tragic circumstance. I deserve the most attention. Um, we say, oh, that's really bad that you're seeking out attention all the time, right? Like, just suck it up, get over it. I don't think that's a good response, but that's the kind of sentiment that, you know, people that struggle are met with. On the flip side, he's saying, no, you should be prideful about how much you suffer because that makes you better than the other person because you're overcoming more than them. And so you should pursue more suffering so that you can say you're better than the next person because you have suffered more and take pride in that. I think that is equally uh, problematic. Um, and it, it is shifting our focus away from what is the end goal of this, which is, again, my, my, my pushback on the book as a whole. Um, what is the end goal? What, what, what am I resist fighting resistance for? I'm trying to achieve this, this calling in my life for what purpose? So that I feel good about myself so that I feel fulfilled. No, I think that it's because it is the life I was created to live. And that life I know is not compatible with ego and pride. And so anytime we're trying to appeal to those kinds of negative emotions to, to make that thing happen, to make that engine run, you might get the end result you want and get it the wrong way. And I think that matters a whole lot. It matters. The, the means to getting to that end are just as important, right? Um, th this is what we see play itself out in politics and in world religion. Like, all right, we're going to convert everyone to Christianity. Okay, great commission. Okay, how are you going to do that? Well, we're going to make it illegal not to be a Christian. We're going to start killing people if they're not Christians. Whoa, okay. Well, that's actually not the way we want to accomplish that goal. And yet that's something that's been done in religious history in the faith, right? We see that done in other religions currently. So th there are a number of ways that we have to recognize, even on the, the smallest microcosmic level of us individuals, one of seven plus billion people living, it matters how we motivate ourselves to overcome our goals. There are people that are like in amazing shape and that have accomplished the goal of getting really fit because they go to the gym and they live off of rice and broccoli and chicken. And, you know, they just go to the gym three hours a day, seven days a week. And yet there's something about achieving that that is empty because it was achieved in a way that never did any of the other work required. Right. Um, the same way with the people that that cut the line in any of any field, uh, maybe the workout. I'm not going to flesh that out more. It probably sounds like a bad analogy right now, but I think the the way that we pursue our goal, goals matter almost as much as the results, if not more so. Um, because if we're able to punch down at people along the way and and utilize um, things like pride to motivate ourselves rather than wholeness and goodness and holiness, then you might get the thing you want and not like it. 
uh, one of C.S. Lewis's lines in uh, Chronicles of Narnia, Magician's Nephew, all people end up getting what they want. Not all people will actually like it. And uh, that's a whole larger thing to flesh out about eschatology or, you know, the end times and things like that. But I think a lot of times people get the things they thought they wanted all along and it doesn't satisfy. So using something like pride, love being miserable, love it more than the next person. um, I think that's a, a surefire way to get the thing you want and be miserable once you get it. Um, so I like the idea. I don't like the, the steps to get there. Um, so let's go a little bit further. He gives a list of things that, um, differentiate, uh, pros and amateurs, you know, showing up every day, show up no matter what you stay on the job all day. You're committed to the long haul, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he says now this, those are all things that the pros do. He says, consider the amateur, the aspiring painter you know one uh, they don't show up every day they do it when they feel like it two uh, they don't show up no matter what three they don't stay on the job all day they're not committed for the long haul etc etc they have not mastered the technique of their art nor do they expose themselves to the judgment of the real world so um, this sentiment that like because you're not committing yourself to the thing you think you're called to, you're only doing it every now and then only on the days when the sun's in the right position, the temperature's right and you feel good and you got a good night's sleep because you wait for those moments to live your best version of yourself. You'll never be the best version of yourself. So again, parallel example, love your neighbor as yourself. If your plan is to only love your neighbors on the days when everything is going right in your life, You're never going to love. You're going to lose that battle 360 days of the year, right? Because we're always going to have adversity in our lives. That's a calling all of us have as followers of Jesus, right? Is to love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, Jesus, uh, we're about to get to Monday, Thursday or mandate Thursday, where Jesus says, I give to you a new command at the last supper. He says to love others as I have loved you. That's, that's a next step, right? It's not love as yourself, love as I have loved you, which means love with overwhelming forgiveness, regardless of whether or not someone deserves it. Like that's a calling that followers of Jesus have. If you only plan to live out that calling on the days when everything's going right, you can't possibly live it out consistently. You can't possibly become quote unquote pro in that area. Now, transition back from that to you being a musician, artist, uh, public speaker, or craftsman, or uh, podcaster, or author, or whatever it is, fill in the blank. Um, You can't possibly be better at those things if you only show up to better yourself on the days when everything's going right. That's what's difficult. You can't only go to the gym on the days when you feel good about going to the gym. You have to build that consistency, even if it's only for five minutes. It's about the, the, the habit of showing up. So he goes on a little bit more. This, this section is called For the Love of the Game. He says, to clarify a point about professionalism, the professional, though he accepts money, does his work out of love. They have to love it. Otherwise, they wouldn't devote their lives to it of their own free will. The professional has learned, however, that too much love can be a bad thing. Too much love can make him choke. Uh, The seeming detachment of the professional 
is a compensating device to keep them from loving the game so much it freezes them in action. Remember what we said about fear, love, and resistance. The more that you love your art, calling, or enterprise, the more important its accomplishment is to the evolution of your soul. And the more you will fear it, the more resistance will keep you, uh, will, the more resistance you will experience facing it. So his point is, we have to clarify this idea that, you know, if you get paid to do something that you enjoy, that it somehow invalidates, you know, the sanctity of doing it. Um, I think he's mostly right about that. Uh, I, I think I'd have to think way more about it and well beyond a couple podcast episodes. But I think for the most part, I agree that just getting paid for something doesn't like, you know, sully the the joy or the passion or the love you have something for, for something. It, it certainly doesn't imply something is no longer lovable or passion, right? On, on the other hand, we have to be careful that we're not doing things just for the money. That's what I see happen in, again, the musician example, people that started out doing it because they loved it. And eventually it's like, well, let me pump out another three albums in two years because I'll get a $600,000 bonus or whatever it is. And now you're not pumping out music you love. You're pumping out music that you think people want. And that's not what you signed up for originally. Part of being a professional is, is dedicating yourself to the thing you believe you've been called to so much because of your love for it, because you know it's part of God's calling in your life. And sometimes that will also include you getting paid to do that thing. And that's okay. Goes on a little bit further. Professional is patient. He says, resistance outwits the amateur with the oldest trick in the book. It uses his own enthusiasm against him. Resistance gets us to plunge into a project with an overambitious and unrealistic timetable for its completion. It knows we can't sustain that level of intensity because we hit the wall and we crash. The professional, on the other hand, understands delayed gratification. He's the tortoise, not the hare. Um, this seems pretty, pretty self-explanatory, but part of, of learning to love your craft is recognizing all of the dreams you have can't get accomplished overnight and pacing yourself and, and recognizing we don't need to, to, to accomplish everything in a week's time. We've got our lifetime. And sometimes we put so much pressure on like what we need to accomplish by 25, 30, by 40, by 65 when we retire, if we do. It's like, no, like, especially as Christians, like if we truly believe that like Jesus died and was resurrected and, and is empowering us to live now, um, we're not just living for today. We're living for the kingdom uh, eternal. And so we don't need to, to check off an arbitrary list that we've come up with because society says you need to do these things by this time or you fail. Um, part of living, leaning into and living into the calling on our lives as, as followers of Jesus is learning that we are rhythmic, seasonal creatures. Things change, but our calling to be committed followers, that does not change. And so we need to pace ourselves. We need to learn how to do these things sustainably. That's why uh, motivations like, he, you know, Pressfield mentions earlier about like, 
being prideful about the being the most miserable person, you know, in the group and just glorifying that seems problematic to me. That's not sustainable either. Um, and so I, I just think there's a there, there's a real value in this idea of saying, you know, amateurs actually because they don't love their craft enough, they don't pace themselves, they don't create the systems to make this thing last long term. It's just that spurt of energy, and then they crash and burn and say, well, at least I did that thing. It's like, no, you could be doing that thing consistently over time. You have to give it time, though. Um, it's just like we, we want everything to be microwave ready where we can just hit a button and it cooks. Like, no, some things, it, it's that slow cook mentality. And a professional learns that sooner rather than later. Um, this is an uh, interesting dynamic he talks about. He says a professional demystifies. He says the pro views her work as a craft, not art. And it's because it's not because she believes art is devoid of a mystical dimension. It's actually on the contrary. She understands that all creative endeavor is holy, but she doesn't dwell on it. She knows if she thinks too much about that, it'll paralyze her. Uh, so she concentrates on her technique. Professionals master how and they leave what and why to the gods. And he uses some mythological language throughout the book here and there. Um, and again, he, he wraps up at the end. He says, the sign of the amateur is the overglorification of and the preoccupation with mystery. The professional shuts up. She doesn't talk about it. She does her work. Now, again, I want my cake and I want to eat it too. I like this. Um, the idea, again, the quote, um, the creative endeavor is holy but doesn't dwell on it because if you think about it too much, it'll paralyze you. So you concentrate on technique doctrine of mystery of God is one of the most important doctrines, if not the most important that we can hold that, that, that is kind of like a glue or a skeleton for all other doctrines we have. It's important to affirm God's transcendence because it reminds us of, of our relationship to God and why it is so powerful that God chooses to be in relationship with us that God being beyond us in every way has chosen to, to be in relationship with us. God is mysterious and it's important for us to reflect on that. But if we spend so much time in that kind of mysterious zone, this language, it'll paralyze us. I think that's right. Um, there's only so much value in living in that um, standstill position of uh, there's so much mystery in the divine that there's nothing else we can do. So the artist or the professional, rather, he says, will concentrate on technique. I think that's good. He says the sign of an amateur is overglorification and preoccupation with mystery. The problem with, I agree. The problem is how do you define how much is too much, right? Especially in faith, how, how we engage with the divine and, and how much time we, we give God um, in reflecting on that mystery it depends a whole lot on the culture we live in in the 21st century in America, where we glorify being the best person in the room and da 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 da, da right? Even in our churches, like we need to do more, grow more, build more. We measure all the parameters for measuring success is how many members do you have? How many services do you have? How many buildings do you have? How many campuses do you have? How many people are you reaching, right? Those are the generic standards. And guess what? They're all very similar to the standards we use to judge businesses. How many people work at PNC? 
How many PNCs are in Pittsburgh? How many PNCs are in the eastern half of the U.S.? Is PNC a national uh, bank? Is it international, right? It's all about how scalable is our success. The problem is in church culture, that's not how we've really measured the success or growth of the spirit throughout history at all. There are plenty of of denominations or at least uh, traditions that spend plenty of time in reflection on the divine and the mystery of God. There are monastics that spend their entire lives in communities where they do that, where they, they dedicate themselves to living lives that are focused on the mystery of the divine. There are certain traditions that spend multiple, you know, spend plenty of time in their worship services acknowledging those pieces of the divine. And and so just because we have decided, oh, well, like if you talk about it too much, like you're not doing enough, like there, there's an, a, a gray area that Pressfield doesn't really give justice to. It's just like a generic platitude. Don't over glorify or get too preoccupied. Well, who decides? You know, there are plenty of things that we're called to do. I, I would love to hear if Pressfield believes that Sabbath is a crucial part of life or if every day is supposed to be a work day in some sense for your vocation. Jesus was very clear about Sabbath being important, that, that Sabbath was made for us. Part of Sabbath enables us to be fully human. This kind of language, um, I think, is always tricky. It's a little bit too generic blanket statement for me. Um, so let me just wrap up. I, I'm seeing the time here for you. So I'll just read out a few things and give some final thoughts. He says, the professional knows fear can never be overcome. It's a daily battle. Um, so we don't dilute, uh, you know, dilute ourselves or dilute, yeah, delude ourselves into thinking it'll ever disappear in some way. Professionals accept no excuses. Um, they know if they cave in today, no matter how plausible the pretext, will be twice as likely to cave in tomorrow. Um, the professional conducts their business in the real world. Adversity, injustice, bad hops on rotten calls and good breaks and lucky bounces. That's all part of life every day. And so we need to recognize that the field is level in some sense. Uh, I kind of disagree on that front. Sometimes it's not level. We all have ups and downs. Some of us have way more downs than we do ups and vice versa. What we mean by level playing field, I think is uh, something that I don't even have the time to, to push back on. And it wouldn't be fair because he's not here to defend it. Um, professionals are prepared each day to confront their own self-sabotage. I think that is a crucial idea. Love that. The professional prepares mentally to absorb blows and to deliver them. Their aim is to take what the day gives them. They're prepared to be prudent and prepared to be reckless, to take a beating when they have to, and to go for the throat when they can. Um, the professional is prepared each day to confront their own self-sabotage. We, we self-sabotage every day in all kinds of areas, right? Um, with your diet, with your sleep schedule, with your work, with your relationships, with your gym stuff, with your you know, craft as a writer or an author or a thinker, we are self-sabotaging creatures and it's because of sin. Um, I, I wish I had this quote right in front of me, but um, again, uh, it's fresh on my mind in the magician's nephew from Narnia. Uh, there's a character that basically just continues to reject Aslan to the point where they can't even recognize the Christ figure Aslan and Aslan's response is, Oh, you, you, 
brilliant humans, you go out of your way to avoid everything that is actually good for you. And it's a sarcastic statement of some sort saying that like we sabotage ourselves so much that we avoid the things that are good. Um, sin is our self-sabotage. It is the, the, uh, the tool with which we self-sabotage and it comes in all shapes and sizes. And, and frankly, it, again, this is where I, I'm, I'm really, I guess, offended by this miserable thing, loving being miserable. Um, be prideful about being the most miserable and being able to overcome and blah, 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 blah. That is self-sabotage. You're, you're allowing this, this sin to become the tool that tricks you into thinking that you are moving forward or doing the right thing. And, and when in reality, you're actually sabotaging yourself. Um, so, yeah, th this book has a bit more in it that I think is good, but, uh, you know, I'm not going to get every little detail uh, out for you all. But uh, there there's so many different pieces that I think are worth considering, especially when you're trying to figure out what what are the things I feel that God's calling me to do that I'm struggling to do, you know? Um, he does talk about limitations and recognizing and respecting limitations in this book a little bit. Um, he, and he talks about like, you know, the, the steps to turning pro quote unquote, he says, look, there's no mystery. It's a decision you make. It's an act of your will. Um, you make up your mind to view yourself as a pro and you do it. And again, that's a little simplistic because it, how do you become a professional writer? And like some people can write every day and never be a, an author, you know, but there are, are steps to this. And I, I think if we view some of these principles he talks about as, as building blocks, right, that we, we allow to, to move us in a certain direction to get the needle moving, they remind us of the fact that we are all a work in progress. At every moment, like we're allowing the spirit to work on us, to change us, to lead us and giving ourselves a bit more responsibility in taking action. Like I'm someone that uses the, the super holy Jesus answer to justify not doing things like I'm just waiting for God to tell me the next thing. It's like sometimes God's waiting for you to do the next thing so that God can tell you more. Right. But sometimes we freeze ourselves in because we're just waiting for perfect answers and perfect scenarios. And sometimes there aren't those. Sometimes faith is stepping out when everything looks crazy and you still choose to trust that God is going to take care of things regardless of how it goes. So uh, the war of art, I think it, there are a lot of good principles in the book. I'm sure I'll reread it a few times. And again, it's a nice thing if you underline and, and fold pages because you can flip through very quickly. Um, you don't need to reread for a few hours every year. Um, so I, I think it's probably worth most people reading. If you feel that, that there are things in your life that you are feeling you should be doing, you feel called to do that, that you might even say God has called you to do um, that you're struggling to commit to. This is a, a good book in that it's, it's self-help in one sense, but it's just a, a very um, explicit reminder that some of these things are just about us learning to shift our mindset. And uh, again, the biggest thing for me is reorienting that in light of our faith. There's nothing I hate more that, 
that's an exaggeration. One of the things I hate most is when people blame the devil for their own sin. All right. The devil was tempting me today, you know, because I, I almost lost my temper. Like sometimes, no, I think you almost lost your temper because that's a sin that you wrestle with. Don't think uh, the idea that like the devil is responsible for any and all sins, I think is really poor theology. It misses the reality of our own capacity for darkness. And that capacity is also what makes immense goodness possible. But when we keep shifting the blame and not owning our own shortcomings, we can't grow. So um, those are some thoughts for you to chew on today. Uh, Again, thank you for listening. Thank you for being here, uh, wherever you come from. And um, I hope to talk with you all soon. This was episode 39. And that's kind of crazy. We're about to be on episode 40. So um, hope you'll continue listening.